Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I am Professor Selena Bartlett. I'm really happy to be here today and to bring to you an amazing young woman, Monique Murphy. She represents Australia as a Paralympian. She's a swimmer and she won a silver medal at the 2016 Rio Paralympics. What an amazing feat. And when you hear her story, you'll hear just how amazing this feat really is. I'm just so grateful that she could join us today because her story is something that will help all of us, um, including myself and people listening. In 2014, uh, I'm sure she's going to share this story, but she fell from a fifth-story balcony and this left her in a coma. And she woke with many, many injuries, which she will probably talk about. And some of them were so severe that it led to the amputation of her right leg below the knee. What she has done is revolutionised training um, with a prosthetic thin, which she calls her mermaid leg. I think the greatest thing I want to share with you, and this is what our podcast is all about, is working out just how untapped our brain's potential really is. And I just love her motto, which is, if your dreams don't scare you, they aren't big enough. And can't we all relate to that? And I am so grateful that she is here. Thank you, Monique, for joining us. And do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, so the night in question that you mentioned, that's will be seven years ago in April of next year. So it's quite amazing to look back and think how much time has passed. And I can't help but think... I could never have imagined I'd be where I am now when I was in that hospital room. So I still have no memory at all as to what happened that night. Um, not from a lack of trying, also lack of interest, but it's it's almost like my brain has tried to protect and shield myself. And, you know, I've obviously worked with a lot of um, sports psychologists and psychologists in the years since and it's really it's not a memory that is needed so much now for me but it is an amazing thing um, from my perspective an uneducated perspective (laughs) how the brain has um, protected me from that from that night so what I do know is that I fell from my fifth floor balcony and I landed on a glass roof below and that glass is what ripped up a lot of my chest Um, and also quite a severe cut to my neck. And I was very lucky that that didn't cut the windpipe. But when I did arrive in hospital only six minutes after the fall, I was conveniently located across the road (laughs) from the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, Their biggest concern was getting the glass out of my neck because they were worried that they would cut the artery and that would cause me to bleed out. So my dad refers to that as signing my life away, but they clearly did a good job because I'm here and I'm still talking. So one of the less severe injuries, but one that's had the most impact on my life since is the amputation of my right foot. And the doctors just said it it had been obliterated with the words that they used. And I do have photos of the foot from that night and x-rays, and it really does just look like the middle of my foot is just sand. So that was amputated straight away. And I didn't realize that's what happened when I woke up because the brain is very cruel in my, from my perspective. I could still feel my foot. I remember looking down and seeing 
my foot had been bandaged and I was confused as to why it had been bandaged in a point. Because normally when you bandage up a foot, you've got the toes sticking up so it's like a 90 degree angle and I could still feel my foot. So I thought, oh, why is it Why is it in a point? I can't see my toes. It's just this big wad of bandages at the bottom of my leg. And then later figured out that it's because they'd amputated the foot. So it was then my decision to amputate further, which is what they initially wanted to do. But my mum had stepped in when the doctor had said that that's what they wanted to proceed with a below knee amputation. And she said she wanted me to have that decision and she wanted me, um, I guess, just to have some agency in the situation. So as much as waking up from a week-long coma to find out you've got to decide whether to amputate more of your leg or not, it's not the most fun thing to wake up to um, down the line. I think it's it's a part of the story that really gave me a sense of control in the situation. Um, so isn't that amazing, everyone? So I guess what we want to discuss and for you listening, what you could take away from this story is Monique and I met um, at a QUT event where, we, where she was the guest speaker for World Mental Health Day. And the thing that resonated with me, I was one of the people on the panel too, but I was talking about the neuroscience. And the thing that resonated the most with me, Monique, was your decision that you made to put the past behind you and move forward. And I think, can we just share a little bit of that story before we go into your backstory, if that's okay, so people can learn about you more? And and I, I think that's the piece that we're hoping for people to take away is that agency for a young girl, I you're 20? 19. 19, which is the age of my daughter right now. <laughs> for you at 19 to take the decision to move your life in an amazing way forward is what all of us have the capacity to do, but we don't realise it. And something made you realise that, and I just want to see if we can like um, probe that a little bit for the audience because that's what everyone's looking for. Mm. And, and people have not lost their leg that are struggling to take agency. So let's talk about that a little yeah. bit. So like I mentioned, I have no memory of what happened. And the doctors believe that's because my drink was spiked. Mm-hmm. And there's no... Um, proof for either way because there was no blood alcohol or um, drug test done on the night because I was in such a critical condition. And so what that meant was, you know, when I found out what had happened, obviously there was a big question of why and how. And, you know, I've always sort of thought you've got to be able to learn from your mistakes, but I didn't know what mistake I'd made. I, You know, I have no memory of choosing or not choosing to take a drug or doing this or doing that. So I just remember being confused on how was I going to be able to move forward and make sure this doesn't happen again. So I remember talking to my dad the most about this and there'll just be some days in hospital um, where it would really hit me and I'd just be like, Dad, I don't understand how what's the how and what's the why of this and, you know, if I don't understand what's happened, how do I move forward and you know obviously people were bringing up questions surrounding like legal procedures like you know what had happened and it had the event had happened at a university village where I'd been living and I'd recently 
to the accident. I'd supported a friend through her own um, court case um, that she was doing and it had taken her years to get anywhere and to finally get some sort of um, result for what had happened in her life. And I just knew I didn't want to do that. I was in hospital as close to starting at zero as I think I'll ever get. Um, And I didn't want to waste any more time. The idea of, you know, pressing charges or going down that legal avenue to find out what happened and to see if there was, you know, someone or something to put blame onto, it just, it sounded exhausting without even really looking into the options. And I didn't want to feel stuck in that hospital bed for years. And I think that's where I was like, I don't know what answers I would find, but even if I found the perfect answers to my questions, my leg wasn't going to grow back. Nothing that I did was going to give me my leg back. And I was in a position where I knew that, you know, my my family's not particularly well off or anything, but I did know that my parents would do what they needed to to make sure I'd get a prosthetic or they weren't going to let me crawl around (laughs) for the rest of my life or I I like to think they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I had a lot of support and a lot of help and that I didn't really need to go down that pathway where all that I might end up with on a good day would be a bit of money. So it was about going these, those decisions of going down that sort of legal pathway, they weren't going to get me anywhere particularly productive. And why not just skip all that and start making some decisions that I am in control of? You know, what what can I do? And what can I do that'll help me to move to move forward? And that's just sort of where it started. It was, you know, think trying to find that little bit of control. And sometimes we can feel, especially the year that we've all had this year with COVID, a lot of that control gets taken away from us. And you know, my first um, experience of quarantine was being stuck in a bed for six weeks. I couldn't even get out of bed. So there is that sense that there is very little control. But, you know, for the first week or two, my family were spoon feeding me. And it was like, all right, I want to be able to feed myself. And it was about setting a goal and doing what I needed to, to achieve it. And very gradually those goals do snowball into bigger ones and bigger ones and you start to gain more control and one of the things my psychologist in hospital um, suggested to me was just to write down three things a day and she said when you go back in a few months or in a few years and you look at those things you'll see you know I might have written down I fed myself and I didn't need to change my shirt afterwards because I didn't drop so much food on myself. And I would read that today and be like, well, you know, that's a goal. I don't ever drop food on myself now. And it's amazing to think how little the goals were back then, but just to see how they did snowball and they got bigger and that control does develop and you do gain more. And then you start to feel more independent and more, um, you gain that confidence that you're going to be able to actually create the life you do want. It just takes a lot of time. And that's what a lot of us aren't prepared for is the time it takes. 
So I think the the takeaway message I took from that little segment there is, and this is what we talk about a lot, it's the little things. Mm. And we try and do sometimes big things at once where what you described there is how those little things that you took agency on in the very beginning, like feeding yourself, added up into you becoming a Paralympian. Mm. And you don't need to have a loss of a limb to achieve these little things, do no. at all. But many of us don't see that. Yeah, and I think... Something I do get a lot is people try to equate what they're going through and be like, oh, it's nothing compared to what you went through. And it's apples and oranges. For me, losing a leg, it was a very physical experience. I actually struggle a bit more with the emotional stuff because in terms of a physical um, trauma, I know that if I put the effort in, do the exercises, I'll see improvements. Muscles grow the more you work them. To me, that's such a simple equation. Um, but then trying to get my head around the mental side of things, that is a much bigger hurdle for me. And you know, I have a friend who was studying her master's um, in medicine when I was getting back into my training. And she was always in awe of how much effort and time I committed to training. I was in awe of how often she studied. She'd study for, you know, 12 hours straight. She'd be up all night. And I'm like, I can't do that. My version of that is in the water. And We've got to stop comparing ourselves to each other and just start to try and be that 1% better than we were yesterday. And if we, I stand behind the blocks now when I race, I'm not trying to beat the other girls. I'm just trying to race myself and do a personal best because at the end of the day, I can't do more than my best. And if someone out there manages to beat my best, well, I'm kind of in awe because I know how much hard work I put in. So they must be doing a lot more and you I was incredibly proud when I hit that wall and got silver in Rio because a lot of people always I think in Australia we have a bit of a bad mentality it's you know it's either gold or nothing but for me that silver was that was my gold for that year I couldn't have done anything different on that day that was my best and I was just racing myself on that day I think silver's amazing thank you (laughs) so do I but if I'd been racing the other girls if I'd been in that last 50 metres, I was breathing towards the stands and I couldn't actually see the other two girls that I was in line with. And I ended up, I got silver and the girl who came fourth was less than half a second behind me. Oh, and between third and fourth was 0.03 of a second. But if I'd breathed the other way and seen them, it would have, I would have tightened up, I would have started spinning my wheels too quickly and it would have changed everything um, because you've just got to, focus on yourself and try to beat your who you are and just get that just one percent that's what I call them in training it's those one percenters that add up and if that's if you only get that one percent each day over a number of days that's going to add up to to big changes so and I think what I loved about that uh, story you just did um, about someone that likes to study versus someone that likes to swim Um, But it is interesting that in terms of the brain, the brain is like a muscle, but most people haven't been taught how to train it like Mm. you would train in your swimming pool. Not many people have been taught that the emotional part of the brain can be trained in a similar way. Mm. It's just really much more 
difficult because it's millions of years of evolution, which is what we talk about a lot on the podcast. Um, and that's the breakthroughs that are coming in neuroscience to help people see that for the first time. And that's a relatively new thing. But what I want to do right now is just flip a little bit back to your little girl story, because as you've probably noticed, Monique's a swimmer. <laughs> so um, she's, she did a lot of her training in Canberra at Tugbanong. I used to go rollerblading there back in the day when I had a baby. Um, so do you want to describe a little bit how you became a swimmer? How did that come about? Is there swimming genes in your family? or? Um, well, I've got a sporty family. Um, my parents, they've always loved to swim and they did a lot of triathlons. And then my brother was a swimmer. He's five years older than me. Um, but then he got into Irish dancing, which is because he was into that that's what I did when I was younger and I was hopeless at it. I was absolutely a fish out of water in that sport. And it would have been probably around when I was in year five, so it would have been about seven or eight. And I started putting a bit more effort into training. I stopped getting out in the middle of sets to go have a shower and warm up because Canberra was cold. Um, and I just noticed the results so quickly in the water of actually pushing through a training session, actually trying to put a bit of effort in, actually. Can I just ask you to interrupt slightly there? What do you, do you remember or recall what made you want to push a little bit harder? What was it? What, what was the I think instigator of that just from a mind point of view? I think I'd started to realize that I wasn't improving in Irish dancing and I didn't want to. I didn't want to do, do better um, because I didn't want to put the work in. And swimming was the other sport that I was doing at the time so I just think I wanted to be to be good at something and swimming just felt very different than being on land and by that point I'd done a little bit in gymnastics I'd done a little bit in AFL I just wasn't very coordinated on land so it was sort of it was there I was getting dropped off at the pool most days so I thought I'll just you know put in a little bit of effort and then Suddenly the coach is praising me and suddenly I'm not... So the, a, so the effort means not is going an extra lap? Yeah, yeah, I'll just put it... Mm, and not skipping laps. And um, I always loved being in the water. I always loved feeling like a mermaid. And I was always very good at butterfly. So it was probably a month or two of just trying a bit harder and seeing it pay off, seeing I was no longer at the back of the lane, I was leading the lane and just feeling so confident and happy that I was achieving. It was that sense of achievement, I think. And I went to a swim meet um, up at Naruma. We, our club used to go up once a year and I won so many medals. I won seven medals, mixture of gold, silver. We got to get up on the podium and my parents were so proud. I was so excited. And I just remember thinking, I don't have to come last all the time. It was like I'd finally found that thing that I was good at. And it didn't matter if I wasn't good um, at school or anything else. There was somewhere that I got to be number one. And I'd worked hard for it. And that was really exciting. So so that's an interesting observation in yourself that you have to work for it. Mm. There's very few people that I, I mean, there's a few naturally talented people, but often they're always putting in the work too. Yes. Behind the scenes. Yeah. It may not look like it, but and there's nearly a, everyone is. There's that saying that um, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. So it was something there. I did have that natural talent in the water, um, but I had to put that effort in 
as well. And I didn't win a lot when I was younger. Um, and when I started qualifying for state championships and things, I wouldn't even make a final. So it was always, from a very young age, it was always about doing a PB because I was just not quite in that competitive zone of trying to win. And that's the sort of catch-22 of growing up in Canberra. I would win in Canberra because it's a very small community. And then as soon as we went and raced in Sydney and or Queensland, you were very far behind where everybody else was. So my aim was always to make a national championships and I never qualified. And for me, by the time I got to the end of year 12, I just thought if I haven't got there now, I'm never gonna get there. And even though I really wanted to go to an Olympics, it was always just a a big dream in terms of trying to map out the steps to get there. I couldn't even get to step one, which was make an age nationals. So I never really got a chance to put that plan into motion because I found I would always get really sick before a competition. I would get really nervous and stress myself out to the point that I would get physically sick. Um, And it just made it very hard to keep bouncing back and training and seeing everybody else swim well and compete well. I just decided that it wasn't for me anymore. And that will be one of the biggest regrets I have. Having seen myself now being able to achieve what I have in swimming, clearly stopping was the wrong decision. Um, But what I wasn't aware what I was doing during that time, even though I did quit, was I was setting up all these practices and, you know, resilience and understanding of how my body worked so that when the accident happened, I knew how to train muscles. I knew that doing those physio exercises, even though they were such small exercises for little muscles, they did add up to bigger things. And I knew how important the consistency of that work was. And really the training I did during those weeks in hospital is probably harder than any training I've ever done since as well. But it was the foundation I had going into my accident it just set me up to sort of succeed with that rehab. Yeah, we were discussing before we started the podcast how I've been talking because you know, I work in the pain field and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But I work with a guy that uh, a doctor here at the Princess Alexandra Hospital uh, talking to him and he used to he's kind of the leading person taking care of people that had paraplegia and, and quadriplegia and other things. And he was talking back in the day how how they used to uh, help people recover was much slower and longer rather than doing any surgical intervention. And so he noticed that people had more time to accept the changes in their life to allow them to reset in some sense. And the second big thing that he's talked about was he noticed that people that made the most significant recoveries for the long term were people that had a lot of discipline in their life, whether they were from the military or sports people or like firefighters or other people that have had to instill a lot of discipline in their life. And I guess from your perspective, that's what I see coming through as well. So how do we help people that don't have that in their life to get some of it in their life if they need to? Um, As you said, like at one point in your life, you were skipping lanes, Mm. right? So a lot of us skip lanes for our whole life. So there was something that shifted for you 
that allowed you to want to succeed at something like that's a mindset that's quite a growth mindset so maybe it came from your parents I don't know or their support or a competition with your brother because he was doing well in something or you know we don't really know but that's what we're all about right no matter what age you are no matter what your situation is whether it's whatever it is we all have that same opportunity to apply a little bit of discipline yeah to achieve something much greater than we thought, which is your motto. Mm. Well, I guess the good news is that it's all learnt behaviour and you can learn it at any time. You know, just because you didn't do a sport or something when you were younger doesn't mean... Just because you didn't learn a a second language when you were younger doesn't mean you can't learn one when you're older. So It's just a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah, it is a bit harder. I do... um, I often say to my parents, why didn't you teach me another language? Because my mum's fluent in Japanese and my dad knows Indonesian, so I really wish they <laughs> taught me a little bit more. Um, but it, it's it can be done, and it is something that you know I still do every day. You know, this morning I was guilty of you know ignoring my first alarm, and I slept in for an extra ten minutes, and I was a little bit late to training. If we had the Paralympics go ahead this year, I wouldn't have been doing that. But so sometimes it's about incentive, and it's having that that right motivation there that keeps you, um, I guess, keeps you honest and orientated for where you're going. And then the big thing with motivation is a lot of people always expect me to reply that my motivation is winning a gold medal. And sometimes my motivation is just being able to come home and eat a big breakfast because I've earned it. Or the fact that if I get up early this morning, I can come home and have a nap. And motivation is something that's really fluid. So it doesn't always have to be that big ticket item. It can just be, if I get up and go for a walk around the block this morning, I'm going to feel better going about my day and sitting at my desk doing a whole bunch of work. So I'm so glad you mentioned that, Monique. So Carol Dweck's work out of Stanford talks about fixed versus growth mindset. Mm. So people that have talent but don't think they need to put in any effort end up getting out-competed by people that don't have the same talent but but put in the effort every day. And so why I mention that is because you talk about these big rewards and they've often shown that those big rewards end up being disincentivizing Mm. because what happens if you don't get one, right? Then do you just give up on the rest of your life and that kind of thing, whereas what you're building in this muscle by, by just focusing on the here and now and the things you have control of is something that you maintain for your whole life. It's a brain skill. Do you know what I mean? That you'll be able to give to your children mm. as well. So yeah. it's those, it's the daily things. It's not the big, the big ticket is something good to maybe have as a big dream, as yeah. you said, but it's really what you're doing every minute, isn't it? And going into Rio, so at the trials in 2016, I swam a huge PB and I was half a second off the world record. So obviously that was very exciting and a lot of coaches were suddenly rubbing their hands together going, yes. And all... I heard going into Rio was going for gold, got to get that gold medal, you can get a gold. And I had to work really hard to make sure that my, my mindset was focused on doing a personal best time because I didn't want to feel like if I got a silver or a bronze that I'd failed. And, you know, this was my first Paralympics. It was, I raced exactly 900 days after my accident. So the fact that I was there was already phenomenal and it's something that I do take with me since because going into the Tokyo games fingers crossed 
next year we have something. Um, I'm going for a time rather than like a personal best time rather than a position on the podium. Because if I do a PB and come fifth, I've still done my best. And I don't want everyone else to make me feel bad because it didn't come out a gold medal. Because And what if you win a gold medal and you don't do a, a good time? I, I've done that before. I've swum at um, competitions and I've won, but it's been a terrible time. And I feel really guilty accepting that gold medal because I know I didn't race well. And there's other people who, you know, if someone's done an outstanding performance to get silver or bronze, it's like, well, you know, it can feel a bit weird accepting a, a gold medal. So it's not, yeah, it really does have to be about what you're chasing for yourself. And it can be difficult, but you've got to try and sort of shut out those expectations or ideas of what other people want. Because when the media rock up at Rio, you know, they, they haven't seen me training every day. They haven't um, seen what it's actually taken to get there. And I remember I did one one race earlier in the program and I did a three-second PB, which is huge, but I didn't make the final, which I wasn't expecting to, wasn't my main event. And I got out and the lady said straight up, she's like, oh, you must be so disappointed not to make the final. I was like, I just did a three-second PB in a race that's not even my main race. I am ecstatic right now and I'm going to go back and focus on my 400 in a couple of days. Like, you know, some people who don't live in your world they don't understand what you've been through so you've yeah you've got to keep that motivation and that incentive relative to who you are and to what you're doing and not what everyone else is sort of expecting of you it's so hard right now i talked to my daughter about this just this morning how hard it is with social media and the way the information is is flow flowing now and she had an amazing observation. She said, Mum, the world's always been like this. It's just that now you can see it. Mm. And there's a lot more people in the world. And so you shouldn't be surprised about this. But I do think social media and technology has had a pretty significant impact on younger generations and the things that they're meant to be and do now is pretty high pressure. Yeah, you know? and you know, we've got to remember that that social media is really just a highlight reel of our lives, you know, when I got diagnosed with endometriosis last year and it was just under three months before our world championships and I didn't post anything about it and I didn't tell anybody. My coach knew, my family, um, but none of the athletes on my team knew and that was because I didn't want to have to deal with explaining what was going on. I just wanted to be able to focus on what I needed to do, which was recover and race um, and not have to take everyone else's emotions into consideration because that's not what it was about but if you went back and looked at my Instagram you would have no idea that I'd had surgery that day and you'd have no idea for that few months how much I wasn't actually at the pool and I was in a lot of pain and I was in and out of doctor's offices you'd have no clue because they're not the photos I chose to share so it can be very um misleading and I've always the highlight reel the highlight reel yeah and I've always had this idea always had this idea that going into a competition you have to have this perfect lead-in and if you you know do win that medal or get that pb it's because you've had a phenomenal lead up and consistency in training and the thing is that nobody really has had that perfect six month 
lead in because we're all human and we have things that we get sick, we get injured, we have family members get sick, we've got priorities change because we need to put more work into um, our jobs so we can earn money for rent. Everyone has these, we just, we're not aware of what they're going through. And it's the people who get behind the blocks and can kind of compartmentalise and focus on what needs to be done at that right time that can shine through. And it's interesting in Michael Phelps's book, you see American Swimmer, um, he writes that behind the blocks, everybody is just as fit, like physically fit as each other. It's about who's mentally toughest to push through that pain and get to the wall first. And it's so true. We all train the same amount and we train in the way that works best for our bodies and we put in that effort. But on the day, it's about what's between your ears. And how much training are you doing right now? That was really funny, wasn't it, when we were discussing that? <laughs> At the moment, I'm training uh, swimming nine times a week. I've got two gym like weight sessions. Um, and then I also try and do a bit of Pilates and cycling, depending on how <laughs> much energy is left in the tank. So how many hours a week is that in training? Oh, that's a lot. So the swim sessions are two hours each. So it almost it's almost around that 24-hour yeah. mark, almost like a full day of training so it really is a full-time job because then you in between training it's all about recovery practices um i'm also studying as well what are you studying um studying a bachelor of business majoring in marketing Uh and where is that that's at griffith uni wow that's fabulous it's my it's nice that we're you but we have you in queensland yes so i moved up here in 2017 and i have to say my tan lines are looking fantastic <laughs> being in an outdoor pool it's been very nice i used to swim in an outdoor pool in melbourne not so nice it'd be very very cold during winter so uh i, I want to touch on this one phrase that you had on the day that i'll never forget when you talk about you got you when you first came out of hospital and you forgot you just let go of the past you knew you couldn't change it you you feel like you had the opportunity because you couldn't see your legs, so you feel like you're in a more advantaged situation compared mm. to people that can't can see their legs but can't feel their legs. But you made this choice, and I'll never forget the phrase, when you wake up every morning, you put on that prosthetic mm. and you head to the pool, and that was your mindset yeah. to, to recovery, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, having an amputation, it's, it's very clear what's happened to your body. My journey with endometriosis has been much tougher mentally because I can't see what's going on inside my uterus and I can't see those growths and the damage that they're causing. But I can see that I don't have a leg. So I know that if I go to stand up and take a step, I'm going to fall down because there's no leg there to catch me. And, you know, that's very different than when you're waiting for other injuries to heal because you can you just got this visual confirmation of what's going on and it sort of rules out a number of options for you. So it's like, all right, I need to get a prosthetic leg. I need to learn to walk. You adjust your what you've got left to sort of make up for what you don't. My left leg has never been stronger because it's got to have incredible balance now and um, it's amazing how the body sort of makes up for what it doesn't have. I've noticed even sort of my spatial awareness and how I do rely more on like sound and what I can see to make up for the fact that I can't feel what's going on down on my prosthetic leg. So it's really quite, quite amazing. But 
yeah, every morning, you know, my day starts off a lot more difficult than most. And I've had to say to a few coaches over the years, it's a lot harder for me to get to get to the pool in the morning than it is for people with without a prosthetic leg. Um, and initially that was, it was much more true a few years ago than it is now. I'm obviously getting into a bit more of a rhythm now, but initially I really, I needed from my coaches a little bit more um, sort of praise when I turned up to the pool. I was like, once I'm here, that's easy. I can, I get in the water, I take my leg off. That's why I come because it's a sport that I can do where I don't need to worry about my prosthetic. doesn't matter if I've got blisters or pain, I can take it off, jump in the water and it's, it's just me. But getting there, waking up every morning, I mean, I've got one of the best excuses not to get out of bed. <laughs> if I, um, you know, if I call like an employer or my uni teacher and I'm like, sorry, can't come to class today because I don't have a leg. They're not really going to argue you. <laughs> the only people who do argue me are my parents or my coach. And, you know, there is that decision every morning. Do I stay in bed or do I get up and make the most of what I've got? Because I don't like thinking, you know, it could have been so much worse or other people have it worse off than me because it's all about how you choose to make the most of what you have. And, you know, some of my biggest idols are a number of athletes on the team who are wheelchair athletes. And a lot of people say to me like, oh, you know, be glad you're not in a wheelchair. And I'm like, it's not, that's not what it's about. It's about making the most of your experience, what you've been through and what you've got left. And I feel incredibly lucky to have the body that I do have because I know how battered and bruised it was all those years ago. I was, I literally had a cast on every limb. So both arms, both legs and my day involved waking up and pressing a button to sit me up and then at night I'd press the other button and lay back down so sometimes now that that memory gets further and further away I do have to remind myself of that and you know you can be in bed for too long sometimes we have such busy lives and we think I just want to spend a whole day in bed but after six weeks of being in bed there is not enough Netflix in the world to keep you entertained. So, you know, I've got to sometimes remember that and be like, no, I have the opportunity to get out of bed, which is something I didn't have once upon a time. And I've got to make the most of that. And that might look different to the next person. Sometimes I go to training and I'm not swimming the same as the other people in the other lane, but I'm swimming the best that I can on that day. And that's what, that's what's important. And the more you start to learn to just measure against yourself, you realize how impressive you actually you actually are and what other people are doing well that's just their best for them and that's that's wonderful and at the end of the day I'm not racing people with two legs so I shouldn't be comparing myself against them anyway so let's talk a little bit about what are what are those big dreams that you're a bit scared about right now oh my big scary dreams um I, I would love to win a gold medal I would love to be on top of the podium um but what that really looks like is doing that time that even surprises me so I have done a few of those it's got to scare you yeah um going into trials in 2016 I I previously swum the qualification time so I just knew I had to get up and do it on the day so I knew it was something like had achieved and I was kind of excited because like I am the fittest 
strongest I've ever been. I'm going to get a PB today. And I just got to remember to push. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't get easier. You just get better. So the 400 freestyle is always going to hurt because you're pushing yourself to your max. It's just, you're going to get faster, but it's always, you're always going to be out of breath at the end. It's always going to make your muscles scream, but that's, that's part of it. So when I hit the wall after the heat and I turned around, I, I thought I'd screwed up the race. It just felt so wrong. And it was only the heat. So I thought, it's all right, just finish the race. You got the final tonight. And I hit the wall and I heard the commentator call out the time and I spun around and I was just in shock because I'd done about a six second PB. And I didn't even think, before the race, I was like, best case scenario, I'll get four minutes 35 and I'd swum four minutes 33. And that's the feeling I'm chasing where I surprise even myself. And that's, that's for me what being on top of the podium would feel like is doing that time where I've trained as hard as I can, where I'm going into a race knowing that everything, um, you know, I've worked so hard. I've ticked all those boxes. I've done my absolute best every day and you sort of get up on that block and it almost becomes automatic. All those little decisions I make every day in training to push off the wall a bit harder, to do a few more kicks, not to breathe first stroke. When you get to the race, it just becomes automatic because that's what you've trained. And yeah, I'd love to be able to get um, under four minutes, 30 seconds, break that barrier would be, would be wonderful. Um, I left swimming the first time knowing I hadn't made the most of my ability and I don't want to leave the sport with a regret this time. So it's been challenging, as I've mentioned, with the diagnosis of endometriosis. That's a bitch of an illness <laughs> and I've had about four surgeries in the last two years for that. So it's definitely a challenge trying to build my body back again and again and it gets very exhausting um, and frustrating. But I think when you do have those little wins when you start to see that momentum build and you know whether you're trying to develop a skill and you start to see things coming into place or you're trying to lose a little bit of weight because you want to feel healthier every time you achieve something you've got to take time to sort of lock that feeling in and you know you either write it down or I know with my partner he he's very good at doing sort of like acrobatics type stuff and I'll say film yourself so that you can go back and look at how far you've come because when you celebrate those little wins you do it gives you the incentive again to keep chasing those big ticket items so I remember what it was like to step up on that podium when I won silver in Rio I remember what it was like to turn around in the pool and see that I'd won silver and like you can see me now it makes me smile just thinking of it um I remember what it was like to take my first steps on my prosthetic and have my family with me and it's those it's that feeling that I'm chasing more than anything it's that feeling of pride and accomplishment and then going home and sharing it with everyone calling up my doctor who amputated my leg seven years ago and saying thank you for making that decision for me because you were right it was the right decision and look at what I've been able to achieve since and then that has an effect on him that has an effect on his workplace, it just all ripples out and you realise this massive community that has come together to help you get there to achieve that, that big ticket dream. But Well, I, yeah. I don't really want to ask you any other questions. 
<laughs> I think that is just the perfect way to end, to be honest. It's mm. a beautiful message. And it's a message that we're trying to create in the Thriving Minds podcast is to yep. people to see that the work that you're doing on yourself is a ripple effect on others. Yeah, and it, and it does. It does link in... Um, to everyone else like when I was there racing in Rio my coach was back in Australia watching that at training with the squad and if it ripples out so much further and the people who one of the beauties of social media is people can contact you and the amount of people who did reach out and um you know watched my race or saw me win and that had an effect on them it's it's quite profound how far your influence can reach and that's you know that's what it's about that's what makes me feel like I'm doing something important and I think the last thing I would like leave on is you know it's not it's not easy going after these big things it's not easy but it is worth it and it takes patience um and it's that simple daily decision yeah and it's just when you wake up and we talk about this a lot mm. like when you wake up in the morning what are you paying attention to yeah you know and and I have to say that I was not very good this morning. So <laughs> but that, that's part of it. The ups and the downs are... It's really important that we... I was going to mention that earlier, yeah. but because you finished so well. But you know, I, it I, is a daily struggle for I miss, some days. I missed training on Wednesday morning. I wasn't feeling well um, and I didn't feel good about it. For I wasn't feeling well, so I knew it was the right decision, but I just felt icky and heavy for the rest of the day. And it's like come this morning when I had an early morning session it's like no I will feel better if I get up and and push through so you know you have those downs but you've just got to learn from them and sometimes we feel like we're going backwards but you've got to remember we are you are always moving forward because even if it feels like you've done something wrong or not so great you learn from it and then that's what if you use that to influence your behavior in the next days then it's all good. The learning from it. The learning from it. Rather that's than repeating the, it yes. until, until, until something comes along and makes you learn. Yes. It's really big. Exactly. Yeah. I miss low learner sometimes. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Monique, for coming here today after your training session um, to help other people. You know, when you're doing this, you're helping other people work out little things that they can do for themselves or for their family. Yeah. And, and I didn't learn these things on my own. I had so much influence from other amputees, other athletes, you know, and it's surprising how when you reach out and ask for help. The but that reaching out's hard, isn't it? It is hard. It absolutely is. But what I definitely have learned is that the people I've reached out to for help, they've actually reached out for help as well. So no one's gotten there on their own. It takes a village. It takes a village. And, you know, the person you reach out to help for, I bet I guarantee you they've been in a similar position to you. And when they turn around and say that, when I people turn around to me and say, no, I asked for help too, I suddenly feel a bit more human. And I feel like this huge weight's lifted off me because what I'm going through, it's it's normal. It's human. And you've got to sometimes sit with those sad emotions but that's how you learn or like that disappointment and that's how you learn you don't want to be there again and you'll make those changes to change the outcome next time yeah well thank you so much and thank you to your family and to everyone that supported you too I'm really grateful and but mostly I'm really grateful for you because you're showing the way you're very young to um, achieve so much and that mindset 
is so important right now, especially as we have many young people mm. struggling and to cope with the outcomes from COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping next year will be better for everybody, but... We'll um, make it better. <laughs> yeah, we have to make it better. But just to know that each of us have this capacity, no matter what the situation is, the one little bit of control we have in yeah. our life is what we can do for ourselves every morning when we wake up. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.